So can I invite you to turn to the Gospel of John. If you've received uh, this handout, uh, what I'll do, I'll read the first passage there. It's from the Gospel of John, chapter 9. The first seven verses. The word of God where it says, As he, that is Jesus, went along, he saw a man blind from birth. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Neither this man nor his parents sinned, said Jesus. But this happened so that the work of God might be displayed in his life. As long as it is day, we must do the work of him who sent me. Night is coming when no one can work. While I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Having said this, he spit on the ground and made some mud with the saliva and put it on the man's eyes. Go, he told him, wash in the pool of Siloam. This word means sent. So the man went and washed and came home seeing. Thanks, Ben, and thanks, uh, Elizabeth, as well, for uh, sharing that with us. Uh, That was very helpful uh, and a great insight, I think, into, uh, on two accounts, great suffering and also great trust in God uh, amid amid suffering. Well, I don't know uh, if you could, uh, if you had one question that you could ask God, I'm not sure what it would be, but the odds are, I think, based on the survey that we've done of people as a church, the odds are that your question would probably be something about suffering in the world. Why is life so hard? Uh, as a church, we asked uh, our friends and family and colleagues what the question they would like to ask God is, and some of the uh, responses that people gave were things like, why is life so unfair? Uh, Why is there so much misery? Why do bad things happen to good people? Why do good people die young? Why are some people rich, not just in wealth, but jobs, marriage and children, while others are unlucky? Why doesn't God put a stop to all the evil in the world? For most people, I think the question is not a philosophical one. Uh, It's not that people say, I can't believe in God because there's suffering in the world. Uh, Interestingly, even even most philosophers who aren't Christians uh, acknowledge that the existence of suffering in the world is not really a valid argument against God's existence. For most people, the issue, issue isn't a philosophical one. It's not whether God can exist. The issue is, why would I want to know a God who allows the suffering to be there in the first place? The issue isn't a philosophical one, but a personal one. Why would I want to know God if he's allowed this suffering to continue? And what we want to try and do this morning, uh, briefly, uh, is to think about the kinds of answers that the Bible gives to that question. Why is life so hard? And I think the first thing to say is, and it's something that Elizabeth Elizabeth has already touched on, is that there's no easy answers. Why? In the passage that Ben read for us, uh, there's a man who's been born blind and Jesus 
And his, uh, Jesus' disciples want to know what caused the man's blindness. The disciples make the mistake, the classic mistake, of thinking about suffering in terms of whose fault it is. If someone's suffering, there must be someone to blame. They assume that if this man is blind, it must be because either he's sinned or his parents have sinned. They've done something wrong and so God has made his life a misery. But Jesus rejects either of those explanations and offers, in fact, a third explanation and that is that the reason that the man was born blind was that the work of God might be displayed in his life. The reason that he was born blind was not because of his sin or his parents' sin, but it was for a higher purpose. It was so that God might be glorified. Uh, in the Old Testament, there's a book uh, dedicated to a man whose life was misery. It's the book of Job. And in that book as well, we discover once again that there's no easy answers to the problem of suffering. Job was a man who trusted God, but in one day he experienced some of the worst misery that could be inflicted on any person. So on one day, uh, raiders came and stole his uh, oxen and his donkeys, fire destroyed his sheep, thieves stole his camels. In all those encounters, his, many of his servants were killed. And on the same day, his children were staying uh, in a house that collapsed because of a, a severe storm and all of them died. All this misery for a man who trusted God and who lived for God and remarkably, his response is not to give up on God, but to trust God even more. So if you look at that handout that you might have received, Job chapter 1, verse 21, Job says, what's his response to this suffering? He says, naked I came from my mother's womb and naked I will depart. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. May the name of the Lord be praised. Job doesn't know what's going on. He doesn't have any answers to the why question, but he resolves that what he will do is to trust that God knows what's going on and that will be enough. If all that misery still wasn't enough, Job himself is then afflicted with the most terrible uh, case of painful sores all over his body. And his wife uh, says to Job, look, Job, give up. You've lost... Uh, You've lost so much of your belongings. You've, we've lost our children. Now you're sick. His wife says, curse God and die. But Job simply replies, shall we accept good from God and not trouble? Job doesn't claim to know what's going on or to know why God is bringing trouble and not good. But he's content to know that God knows and to know that whatever God does must be good. Job's friends come along and they see his misery and they fall into the same mistake that the disciples fell into. They think that if Job is suffering that it must be his fault. But as the book of Job progresses, it's a long book, you can read it if you like afterwards, it's in the Old Testament. As the book progresses, at the very end of the book, God speaks. We discover that what Job's friends have said is not true. It's not Job's fault. At the end, God speaks and he says 
that he has his own reasons for allowing Job's misery. And though God reverses the misery, God never explains what brought it about, what the reasons were. Except to say, who do you think you are to know the mind of God? You see, one of the reasons I think that we struggle so often to understand suffering is because instinctively we believe that whatever reasons God must have for allowing suffering, they must be within our grasp. They must be reasons that are accessible to us, reasons that we can understand. But what if, suppose just for a moment, hypothetically, what if God's calculations in determining to allow suffering involved every variable that there was available in the world? What if God's calculations involved every single person, every circumstance, at every moment, not just in the world as it is now, but in the entire course of human history? And what if even the most minute variation in any single person's life or situation or circumstance would change everything? I don't know if you've heard of chaos theory, uh, but there's a famous statement about the butterfly effect. You know, A butterfly flaps its wings on one side of the world uh, and on the other side of the world, two weeks later, a storm erupts. The point is that the smallest variation at an enormous distance, can have an effect, an enormous effect, a long way away. And just like in science, in meteorology, uh, the chaos theory is used in meteorology, the point is it's very difficult to predict those systems, that the reasons why one thing happens here and not there are inaccessible to us, just with the weather. Maybe, just maybe that God's reasons for allowing misery and suffering in the world are also beyond our grasp and beyond our calculation. There's no easy answers to why one person suffers more than another. But isn't it possible, just possible, that God might have reasons that we can't understand? Tim Keller, uh, who wrote the book, uh, one of the books that Elizabeth pointed out, has often pointed out that if we have a God who's great enough to be angry at for allowing suffering to exist, then he's also a God who's great enough to have reasons that we can't understand. Well, that's the first thing. There's no easy answers for why you as an individual or me as an individual or anyone else as an individual, why any person suffers more than another. But the Bible does give us kind of one overall comprehensive reason, reason for why there's suffering at all in the world. Uh, for those who were here last week, we, we asked the question, why are we here? And we saw that the Bible tells us that God created the world good. God didn't create the world bad, with suffering, with difficulty. God created the world good for us to enjoy, for us, for us to look after, for us to develop. And God created us to know him and to love him and to enjoy him. But within the first few pages of the Bible, that idyllic reality is thrown into chaos and confusion. The first uh, two human beings that God created, Adam and Eve, do something unthinkable. They decide that they know better than God. God had given them one rule 
That one rule was that they couldn't eat from one tree in the garden that God had created. But when they looked at that tree and they saw that it was a good tree, it was a beautiful tree, and that the fruit looked good for eating, they decided that they knew better than God and so they plunged the whole world into the chaos in which we now find ourselves. In a sense, God gave them the world that they wanted, a world where God is far away. We think we know better than God, you see, and we try to construct a world without God, a world which is ruled by our own ideals rather than God's ideals. God created our world and we try to create a world without God. We share in Adam and Eve's corruption, that is, we share their same desire, their same thinking. We think we know better than God and we want a world where we can do what we want rather than what he wants. And we also share in their curse, that is, God has cursed the world, given us a world where God is distant where things that were easy are hard, where things that were pleasant are unpleasant. There are still echoes of the good world that God created, but the glory of Eden is tainted by the reality of human evil. Not just evil, but humanity's evil, our evil. The world is stained by our sin. And it's not just the sin of evil people, but it's a sin of all of us. I asked myself the question, uh, maybe it's a question you've asked yourself before as well, why is it that I seem to end up hurting the people that I most love? It's not just evil people, is it, who make the world a miserable place. We make it a miserable place too because we hurt the people that we love the most, not the people that we love the least, not our enemies. But in fact, we make the world a miserable place for the people that we want to protect and that we want to care for. Why is that? Why do we do that? The Bible says it's because deep down we're scarred by our rejection of God. We're corrupted and distorted by it. Someone once told me uh, that it was the war that made them stop believing in God as an older person. And they'd lived through the war and they said, I told them I was a pastor and they said, Carl, I can't believe in God after the Second World War. I just, there was so much suffering. And at one level I understood what they meant. But at another level, I thought to myself as well, isn't it humanity that the war should make us stop believing in? It wasn't God who invaded Poland and it wasn't God who firebombed Dresden in the dying days of the war either. Do we expect God to come and intervene at every moment in the world where we might make someone else's life a misery? Isn't that in conflict with our desire, more or less, to live in a world where God is not present? 
We try to construct a world without God, but then we expect God to stop our evil. We want a world without God, and to some extent that's the world that God has given us. In Luke 13, uh, on the handout, we have another example of people who apparently thought that a particular disaster was the result of a particular sin. Uh, And it says there, Luke uh, writes, Now there were some present at that time who told Jesus about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mixed with their sacrifices. Jesus answered, Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? I tell you no, but unless you repent, you too will all perish. All those 18 who died when the Tower of Siloam fell on them, do you think they were more guilty than all the others living in Jerusalem? I tell you no, but unless you repent, you too will all perish. Jesus is talking about two incidents that people at the time would have known really well. One incident was where Pilate, who was a Roman governor, had uh, killed some people and he'd used their blood, the blood of these human beings, these people, uh, in sacrifices, ritual sacrifices uh, made to some of their gods. The other disaster that the people would have known about was the collapse of a tower, a tower in a place called Siloam, and 18 people were killed. And Jesus is asking the question, do you think that these people who were killed by, slaughtered by Pilate all these people who uh, were crushed in the collapse of this tower, do you think that those people were more wicked than anyone else? Do you think that they were more deserving of that uh, disaster than, than you are? And the stunning reply of Jesus is that those people weren't more sinful, more wicked, more evil. But not because... All of humanity is equally innocent. But actually because all of humanity is equally guilty. Jesus says, do you think that they were more wicked than you are? No. But unless you repent, you too all will perish. It's sometimes been said that the biggest question of the meaning of life and of the world and everything is not why is there suffering, but actually why is there good? Why in a world where we seem so so determined to hurt everybody that we love, why actually is there any good at all? Except that God is a gracious and a compassionate God slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. There's no easy answers to the question of why life uh, or why any particular person's life is so hard, but the Bible does give us an answer as to why the world is scarred with pain and suffering and it's because we've tried to construct a world without God. But that still doesn't answer, lastly, the question of why God doesn't come down and sort it out. Why doesn't God just sort of come now, appear now, and make it all better again? At one level, the reason that God doesn't do that is because sorting out the world and the misery in our world would mean sorting out us. If the reason that the life of my friends is so difficult is because I'm not always a very nice person, then the only way that God can make their lives better 
is to destroy me. You see, the Bible is in fact a long story of two things. It's a story of God's great patience with us as human beings and it's a story of God's great commitment to sorting out our world. And the greatest example of God's commitment to sort out our world is in Jesus Christ. So the Son of God, Jesus, entered into the pain and suffering of our world. He became a human being like us. He suffered an unjust and cursed death at the hands of humanity and he did it to sort out the world, to take the penalty for our rejection of God. And he did it in order to remake our humanity in his image through his resurrection from the dead. And if we trust in Jesus, we share in that. We share in that escape from pain and misery through the cross and that remaking of the world through Jesus' resurrection from the dead. See, the death of Jesus on the cross doesn't answer every question that we might have about suffering. But what it does show us is that God is deeply, deeply committed to sorting out our world and to sorting out the pain of our world. God is so committed, in fact, that he entered into the pain of our world, took on our pain and suffering, and he took it on himself and crucified it to set us free. John Stott uh, was a Christian pastor in England. He passed away a few years ago now, but he wrote a book, uh, a classic book called The Cross of Christ. And in it he says... I could never believe in God if it weren't for the cross. Because in the real world of pain, how could one worship a God who was immune to it? How could you believe in a God? In a world which is full of pain, how could you believe in a God who is immune to pain, distant from pain, remote from it? And he goes on to talk about how he's visited uh, uh, temples, uh, Buddhist temples in Asian countries, And he stood and he's looked at the statue of Buddha sitting there with his legs crossed and his arms folded and his eyes closed with this kind of this faint smile on his face and and this expression of kind of distance and remoteness. And as he stood there and looked at these statues of of Buddha, he's imagined the cross and Jesus hanging there. Lonely, twisted, tortured, nails through his hands and feet, back lacerated, limbs wrenched, brow bleeding, mouth dry, plunged into God-forsaken darkness. Sot says, that is God for me. Not a God who's immune to pain, but a God who laid aside his immunity to pain. He entered our world of flesh and blood, tears and death. He suffered for us. Stott writes, the cross of Christ is God's only self-justification in a world such as ours. See, the cross doesn't answer, answer all our questions. It doesn't answer the question of why. But what it does do is it does say that we can trust God, that God's not indifferent to our suffering because he's taken it on himself and entered into it. 
The good news of what God has done in Jesus and his death and resurrection is not a promise that if we become Christians that our lives will be perfect now, but God has demonstrated that he means to put the world right and that one day Jesus will return to put the world right and to end all our misery and suffering and to eradicate evil for all those who trust in him. There's no easy answers, unfortunately, to why one person suffers more than another. But in one sense, we all share the common blame for our predicament. But that in God, Jesus took on our sufferings and pain demonstrates that God is a God to be trusted and a God to be loved. A man by the name of Edward Shalito Uh, published a poem shortly after the world emerged from the cruelty of the First World War. And the last stanza of his poem captures the sentiment perfectly. He writes, The other gods were strong, but thou wast weak. They rode, but thou didst stumble to a throne. But to our wounds, only God's wounds can speak. And not a God has wounds, but thou alone. Let me pray. Dear Lord and Heavenly Father, thank you that you are a mighty and powerful and loving God who made our world and created us and who loves us. But Lord, thank you that you are not only a powerful God, but a merciful and a compassionate God, a God who humbled himself in Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ who became obedient to death, even death on a cross that you entered into our misery for our sake to rescue us from sin and death and judgment. And Lord, we still continue to walk through a difficult and sad world. Lord, we pray that you would enable each one of us, as we do that, to trust you as Job trusted you. To be able to say, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Lord, for those of us who are struggling to understand the deep pain and suffering in our own lives, Lord, we ask that you would give us clarity And help us to remember Jesus Christ hanging on the cross for the redemption and the rescue of those who trust in you. We ask it for Jesus' sake. Amen.